Hi, I'm Rebecca Kenyon. I was the prop master for season two of Cobra Kai, and you're listening to Cobra Kai Companion. Welcome back to another episode of Cobra Kai Companion, and I am Peter, and today's interview is with Becca Kenyon, the prop master of Season 2 of Cobra Kai. Before working on Cobra Kai, Becca had also worked on other TV shows such as uh, Burn Notice, The Finder, Power, Graceland, another YouTube original, Champagne Ill, but also she worked on the Academy Award winner for Best Picture of 2017, Moonlight. Becca talks about some of the props that we have seen in season two and some of the complications in building some of the items. And this is our conversation. Hello. Hello, Becca. Yes, this is Becca. Hey, it's Peter. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm doing the best I can. How are you doing? Pretty much the same, I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. A weird time. Um, have you been doing anything fun this weekend? Um, no. We've been hiding from other people, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, much of the same. And you? Uh, fun. Well, today, earlier today, um, my co-host Brianna and I, we joined the hosts of Are You Karate Kidding Me for a live stream along of the first Karate Kid movie. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we had like an hour-ish of technical difficulties because we... Have, oh, no. Yeah, you know how that goes. And um, Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, all things considered, we ended up just doing it on Facebook Live when we wanted to do YouTube. But uh, what was cool was Hayden was able to join in on that, too. And so we got to mess with him a little bit. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So, um you know, I don't know if you have any questions for me, and if not, we could just jump right into it. Yes, absolutely. I don't have any questions. So you're the prop master for season two of Cobra Kai? Yes, I was. Okay. Um, now, usually, I, I wasn't able to find, like, anything in, in terms of your background on online. So at what point in your life did you decide that you wanted to work in film, whatever department? Um, my whole life, I would genuinely say that since I was, when you go to like kindergarten and they ask you what you want to do when you grow up, I said I wanted to make movies. I said that my favorite color was black and my favorite food was tacos <laughs> and that I wanted to make movies. And honestly, like however many years later, I have to say not a lot has changed. I'm, I'm impressed with that determination of myself at such a young age, but here we are, um, I always knew as well that I wanted to do something on the visual side of it because I guess the creation of an entire world has always interested me. Hmm. You made a film yourself back in 2009 called Greener. Yes, I did. Um, my entire time in college, I actually, one of my college degrees is in uh, documentary film production, and I spent my time in college making um, documentary films about environmentalism and recycling and specifically greener it was like a personal look and it involved me teaching children 
had to about recycling and about self accountability through a puppet show. And then I went to elementary Montessori schools and I kind of would talk to kids about what their thoughts were about the environment and all of that and see like what they knew and open up a dialogue. Well, that's amazing. I mean, you got to start them young, right? When you're teaching them about anything. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, that was, that was a different film. That was Hand Me Down World. Greener was where, um, was looking into recycling. recycling practices and multifamily and multifamily structures in Orlando, Florida at the time. Yeah, but um, regardless, start them young, you know, so that way they're not littering. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it it kind of reminds me of this um, video I saw. I don't know who produced it, and I'm terrible because I don't even remember the city, but there was a man who made it his mission to clean up the beaches in was it Dubai or something like that? Where That's amazing, yeah, they're notoriously known for just having the dirtiest of uh, beaches because of all of the um, the littering and you know your your foams and your plastics. And over time, yeah. he would do it, and people were like, you know, you're wasting your time. But others would join in, and ultimately, they were able to clean up beaches. Um, so it's a pretty amazing Absolutely. story. Absolutely. Anytime to get people involved. Yeah. People, people really just want to be involved in, in anything in the world and in projects. They want to feel their involvement. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the same even on, even on film productions. Uh, like when even when people are dealing like, with the background and stuff like that, like I remind everybody that they're part of this too. They want to feel involved just like the rest of our world. If you involve, involve children, involve, um, like I was in the community and you'd be surprised in the response that you can get. Yeah, no, absolutely. It takes one person and, you know, their drive will, you know, that's, that, that can be contagious, right? You know, doing goodwill. And I think others, uh, others want to feel something special and be a part of that. I absolutely think it is. Definitely. You're correct. Yeah. Hopefully it can be the same in our weird quarantine times right now. Yeah, I, I think People so too. Out and doing good. Yeah, everyone's trying to do something. Uh, again, hats off to Brianna, uh, my co-host, because it was her idea to do the stream. Because right now, so little is known about season three, and you know, this time last year we already had a, a teaser, a trailer, all, all these things going on, and we don't know what's going on now. So we, you know, she figured let's let's do something. You know, let's get a streaming, get some of the other podcasts together, and maybe we can you know, kind of introduce their listeners to our listeners and vice versa. Um, but just to get the viewers of Cobra Kai something to do or something to watch. So that's that's kind of what we were trying to do earlier today. That's great. I'm very excited as well for season three. I have to say just because I did not work on season three does not mean that I still don't love the show. And actually, I watched it before I got on it. And <laughs> I feel like I willed into... Being our team jumping onto that show because when I heard it shooting in Atlanta, I was like, what do I have to do to get on that show? Yeah. And um, by chance, I mean, I guess probably not by chance, we um, we worked on a Sony show in the same building that we shot shortly before. So we geared up. We, we did another show for Sony called uh, Champagne Ill for it was a YouTube original as well. And um, we got brought into that, and then I guess the producers told uh, the producers of that told the producers of Cobra Kai about our team. And when they came in, they found me in my office and asked if we would participate in that as well. So oh, wow, um, I I feel like I just willed it into being because our team was I am a child of the '80s, and my team was very excited 
to uh, to jump onto Cobra Kai. We were all big fans of the Karate Kids movies growing up, so that was really awesome. That is awesome. It, it almost kind of you, you say willed, but I feel like it kind of fell in your lap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I, I, we, we definitely managed to make ourselves in the right place at the right time. Very pleased with ourselves with that. And um, I was not disappointed in the experience either. It was a, a fantastic show to be part of. The camaraderie, all the people that everybody on that show worked so hard. It's very impressive, uh, especially and including the, the stars of the show, the kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, those kids are so great. I miss them. I do miss them. Um, I would run into Tanner every now and then in my neighborhood. I think he's my neighbor. I'd run into him on the belt line. Yeah, definitely miss all of that. Now, you mentioned being like a documentarian uh, kind of early on. Um, on your IMDb, you have worked in like both art department and in prop. Uh, how different are those two departments? They are very related. Um, the we the props is obviously one of the more visual departments on set. In terms of the supply something that you immediately can see. Um, yeah, we definitely work very hand in hand with everybody else in the art department. The art department also uh, involves the graphics department. It has the production designer overseeing it, and uh, especially working with with Ryan. I love Ryan and Eric, our production designer and art director. Fantastic team, um, and they were always very uh, willing and able to help if we needed any direction or. If I, you know, got stuck into a quandary or wanted to see what they thought of a certain contribution, it was, uh, it was a very, a very team effort in making sure that our show had the had the right look and was very cohesive. Yeah, and as far as graphics go, I mean, graphics are so important, and that's that's also a big part of being involved with, with art. So uh, we had a great graphic designer. So for our department and, and working in props, did you have to go to like a special school for that? Or do they teach you that in film school? Like what, what is the, the process of becoming a prop master? Um, well, I, I think everybody goes down a different path, but my path was definitely, um, I mean, even my, even my PA jobs for the most part were uh, with the art department or with set dressing. Um, props usually doesn't really have a PA that was sort of my my place to start is that I started uh, in the art department as a PA, kind of assisting the production designer, anything that they needed. And um, it's a really great place to kind of learn about all of the other all of the other departments as well that are around the art department, uh, props, set dressing, even greens, uh, watching the art director work, watching the prop master, um, seeing the flow of work through the office and how really everything, I mean, everybody has such a schedule such a small window when we get the scripts and then you have to prepare everything and for it to be everybody really does have to go full speed on their own um, but to be in that position to kind of uh, watch all of those people and figure out figure out how the wheels really turn um, is really interesting and then going off and I um, I was the set, the set dressing lockup PA burn notice and I was then I worked myself up. I joined the union. Um, I became a set dresser on burn notice. I got um, interested in the props department, and I moved over to props. It's uh, I liked the more tangible, the the details of that. I mean, set dressing is fantastic, and set dressing you literally get to create a world that a character or a bunch of characters uh, get to exist in. And I mean, there's nothing more transformative than walking onto 
a set that really just kind of puts you exactly where you're supposed to be in that mental health space, but then to actually provide the, the stuff that um, goes along with all that really interested me. So that's kind of what lured me over to props. And then I kind of, I probably worked in every, did every job that you can do in the, in props and in set dressing um, to kind of get where I am now and sort of find my way and figure out where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. But um, my other degree is, aside from documentary, is in uh, anthropology and um, with a concentration in cultural anthropology and dealing with all of that, thinking about one of the avenues of anthropology is archaeology. And I mean, that's what's left when people leave, like you have their stuff. And as far as props go, like that's what we get to do. We get to we get to curate and create all of the stuff that you that you have that makes you you. And I really like being able to contribute in such a small but specific way. That's, I think, what I like about props. I, I do find, you know, your your job very fascinating. You know, you sent me a, a few pictures. Uh, so so one in particular that I kind of want to talk a, a little bit about, but um, Tori's, uh, the spikes on her bracelet there. Her bracelet, yeah. Yeah, so in creating that, like, do you, like, the skills that you have to know and learn, do you, um, like, in, like, science, for example, okay, like, that that is plastic. Do you learn on the job and on the fly on how to make certain things, but using a different type of material to make it look a certain way, you know, like, the you know, um, just by making it look metal, things like that. The, the science in that, is that something you have to have before becoming a prop master? I don't think so. I think that that's actually one of the most interesting and best parts of my job. I love that I get to learn new things. I love that I get to become an expert in the most random and arbitrary seeming things, but my browser history is always the weirdest. My Amazon <laughs> just suggestions are <laughs> off the wall. I can only... I can only tell you, um, but I love that I get to learn new things all the time. And I love when I get to incorporate things that I've learned for other things, for other projects, for other reasons, even if it's like a hobby in my personal life, I love incorporating all of that into my job. Um, one of the fun things I think that I try, I think I sent you the photo for Tori's bracelet that had, it's clearly me figuring out how I wanted to color the spikes. Yeah. Because um, the material that we used was uh, it was a smooth-on material. What's that smooth-on? Thank you. Um, it was a smooth-on material to um, with the rubber, and I also have all of these pigments that you can add to it. Whether and at first we were just making them with the with the regular rubber, so they were kind of like it's like yellowish, clearish color. And then I started adding silver powder to it, and then painting it with silicone paints, and trying to play off it like. I mean, I don't want to say what the least amount of work would be, but I wanted to see, I made over a hundred of those little spikes that were on her bracelets. We made, I want to say I had all in all 12 of her bracelets because um, we shot that scene. The, I mean, it's, it's pretty much the last two episodes. High school fight mm-hmm. um, took like a week in a high school. Um, we, like seriously, you were, it was, it was like being in a high school nightmare. If your nightmare is walking down the hall, I mean, it was my dream, but walking down the hall and turning down every hall and there's like kids fighting down every hall. And we had little splinter units with kids fighting, two kids would be fighting down this hall and then two kids would be fighting down the next hall. And you're just like, I'm just trying to find so-and-so, like whoever it is that you're looking for walking on set or trying to find the bathroom and you keep walking up and there's all these groups of kids fighting. Very bizarre. (laughs) 
But um, so we had to have all of these versions of Tor bracelet because um, if she threw a punch and dragged it across someone's face, the uh, the spikes were glued down onto a synthetic leather that um, I added the snaps to. So um, our costumes department established that bracelet on her, I believe, a few episodes before. So I didn't know what the bracelet looked like until... Uh, we got the script and I was like, well, I guess I should go down to costumes and see what it is we're using as a weapon. So I went down there and our great costume designer let me uh, borrow one of them. And uh, I took it apart, figured out how I could remake it, put it back together. And then I went to the craft store and started buying a bunch of vinyl so that I could and snaps and stuff so I could start making bracelets and started molding the studs. Um, it was a really interesting process and it was fun to do because I'm glad that I get to do arts and crafts projects like that. Is this Frank that you're talking about in costume? Yes. Oh. I love Frank. Frank is a wonderful man. He's great. Yeah. He had the, they had the bracelet that they had established and then they, he, he let me have one so that we could, we could make our own. It, was, it worked out very well. I have to say. <laughs> nice. We had the, we, my, my crew was constantly picking up those little studs though off because we obviously want them to fall off is so that they're not, they're not hurting anybody. That's the idea. And then we would have 12 bracelets. So we're reattaching the rubber to the vinyl because it doesn't, I mean, it sticks well, but not when you're dragging it across one's face. So. Yeah. Uh, since we're already kind of uh, talking about props, um, some of the props that jump into my mind, uh, the very first time a lot of our listeners um, heard your name was when John Hurwitz mentioned it after being asked about the uh, the ticket stub found in Daniel's scrapbook or picture oh, album. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and uh, I believe that... Was that your idea to include that? We actually made those ticket stubs. But I will say that we had photos of a lot of stuff that was brought to us by Ralph. Um, I knew that it was really important to kind of get that right because uh, we always kind of would think about Mr. Miyagi and wanting to incorporate his the idea of him because we didn't really have him. So I knew that it would mean a lot to Ralph to make sure that we got all of that kind of stuff right. The pictures that he brought me were photos that his mom had taken and they were not part of the movie, but some of them included um, Ralph and Pat standing on top of a mountain or whatnot. And I was sad that we couldn't include some of those because narratively they didn't make sense, but sentimentally they were beautiful. Yeah. But, um, the scrapbook because we made those tickets. Um, I can't remember the context in which that we, um, I mean, I knew I wanted to put ticket stubs in there. We kind of extrapolated some of the information and it worked out well. Scrap, I love scrapbooking. <laughs> so I was really happy to do that for the show. Uh, can you talk about, um, did you guys also make the Medal of Honor? We did not make Medal of Honor. It is actually illegal to manufacture and purchase in the United States a Medal of Honor um, because it is it is an honor bestowed by the government. So it was um, the original, the first one that was that was the first version hanging on the wall was was uh, rented for a prop house. And then I found on the internet somewhere that somebody had made a very good replica because you can't buy a real one, but it was. It was very impressive, and I it flew from somewhere in another country. We'll leave it at that. Okay. But uh, it's a replica of a real Congressional Medal of Honor given by the government, and it was very – the original that we rented, I can tell you that the ribbon part of it was beyond fragile. <laughs> it made us very nervous. Yeah. 
But um, then we bought when we bought our own because of how fragile it was. That's why we got the replica. And um, the paint department just did a really fantastic job. Big shout out to our paint department. We had a fantastic paint department led by um, a very talented woman named Erin Ashley. And uh, yeah, she did a lot of really cool things for us, including the decal that was on Mr. Miyagi's syndrome. Oh, right. Can you talk about the drum toy? The drum toy. So we would block shoot our episodes, we would shoot two episodes at a time. And in the, I think it was in the, within the first two episodes of season two, we were including the spin drum and the Okinawan hand sanders. Okay. And um, my nerd brain exploded when I read that I got to make both of those things. Unfortunately, there wasn't any real information anywhere on them. And neither one of them are something that exists commonly in any form, really, that the Okinawan hand sanders, I couldn't find anything that was remotely similar. So I um, had wallpapered my office with screen grabs of as many times as we had seen the hand sanders and as many times as we had seen the spin drum. And I probably watched the spin drum scene at the end of the second movie. I watched that spin drum scene so many times and I, I had the, I drew the hand sanders and I sent them to it and I sent the drawing to a company in New York called the specialist. And um, they helped me manufacture those and I made the spin drum myself in my office in Georgia. I got a drum body and um, took it fully apart, just used the little circuit head. And um, yeah, we, re- we recreated its little beads around the outside and found the perfect little um, Buddha head to sit on the top. Everything was perfectly aged by our paint department and the Miyagi-Do um, logo is very faintly stenciled onto one side and then aged over again you can barely it's there but and we had to kind of figure out what they would look like this many years later taken reasonably care of but still that would make them incredibly old mr miyagi would have been a very old man yeah absolutely it looks perfect too like you know the the the, the pictures that you sent me I'm, I was just amazed how, how well it looked aged. So that's interesting that the art department did that. But um, it looks perfect, you know, for the lack of resources that you Thank had you. to go off by. Yeah. I mean, even the screen grabs were everything for this project. Because it's not like had a, a reference guide or anything like that to really go by for some of the stuff that existed from the, uh, from the movies. So we kind of were just left to... His screen grabs of, I think I had the entire season, I would have like an Amazon Prime video window open with one of the movies open on it. Yeah. <laughs> I was always like watching clips of something, whether it was Mr. Miyagi's ice tea tray or the punching bags, whatever it was, I was constantly like referencing the movies. Now, it's not like you gave me all the pictures, so I'm not sure what else you guys created. Uh, what, what were some of the other items that you and your team made for season two? So the punching bags, there's um, there's a couple scenes where we see people lifting the punching bags and like whether they're uh, whether it's when uh, Tanner and Ralph are redoing the dojo at the beginning and they put up the new punching bag and a punching bag weighs uh, 70 to 100 pounds and Tanner had one arm in a sling, Robbie. And Ralph kind of has like something else in his other hand. So for them to pick up something that was a hundred pounds, it seemed ridiculous. So we actually had 
for any like super hard hits that really had to ring, we had a punching bag that weighed about 20 pounds that instead of being filled with rags, which, well, it's sometimes what makes a punching bag so heavy. Instead, we had, it was, it was lined with pads, uh, padding and foam to make it significantly longer. We also, what else do we do? We did the hand sanders and the spin drum, but we did the scrapbook. We did these, uh, all of the swag that the, so that was actually at the beginning of the season, the three guys, when we had our first prop meeting for the season, they were telling me how they were possibly interested in selling some of the merchandise that we create for the show because I had mentioned that I always say real life is branded. It is. Everywhere you go, there's brand there's brand names, there's branded things. And for a team like Cobra Kai, they definitely would have had merchandise, some team pride, so Cobra Kai swag. But we were making it for kids in the show and then uh, sending photos to people. I remember their assistant was coming to my office and she was like, can I get a picture of that water bottle that you made? Or that towel that you made or whatever it was and do some photos. So um, the merchandise that you can buy in the official Cobra Kai store is actually based on a lot of it that we made for season two, as well as the, the Cobra Kai towels when Dimitri shakes out his towel, stuff like that. And what could we, what could we make that people really would like to see? It's also the kind of stuff that would make the most sense for these kids to have. What about the, um, the ice blocks? Ooh, the ice block, the ice block. Where I was very disappointed. I really hoped that that was going to come back and they get to again. So we didn't, we never really got the device blocks in place. So we kind of had to figure that out on our own, kind of just on what would make most sense. It was a little primitive, but we still managed to class it up, I think. And then the ice themselves were just poured clear plastic, another smooth on product. And then they were. We would add water to it to make it look like it was um, right on the day. And as you can see in some of the shots, it's just kind of dripping. We would pour water on it right before we would shoot because they are never supposed to have gotten to do their special prank because instead Cobra Kai comes and ruins the day, crashes their demonstration. Yeah, I I think um, I've seen a picture of John, Josh and Hayden uh, standing next next to the ice blocks. And yeah, it looks it looks spectacular. It does. It looked great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I really enjoyed from the season was, uh, I mean, especially in terms of the merch that we made and stuff like that, we also, it was really special having the original, the original Cobras come in. Um, and once again, it was back to all the original movies to kind of get some screen grabs and some references on what these guys look like and all of their, and they look like individually and together. Um, when we, when we brought all the guys back for the camping episode, um, you know, which ends with the body bag, unfortunately, right. I mean, it can't be a spoiler last season, <laughs> but to be able to bring them all back and figure out with Frank and, um, with the, with the three guys, um, how we were going to immediately bring them back into this, into this Cobra Kai mentality and bring them together in a very visual way. And, um, Looking back, a lot of my, uh, when I, like I said, I would pull up a bunch of uh, screen grabs and like paper the walls with them. And one of the things that obviously I kept getting a lot of uh, for the original Cobras altogether was them on their, was them on their dirt bikes and was them dressed as the skeletons for Halloween. So we kind of brought back that, that togetherness 
of of that Halloween costume when they were all together and brought it back with their face masks when they are riding motorcycles together. They have the I can't think of the word right now, those buffs that go over your nose and cover your neck. Well, yeah, yeah, the face and covers. They all, mm-hmm, and they're all skeletons um, as a little homage to their skeleton costume in the Karate Kid movie um, with the matching skull caps and everything. And it was really nice to, to meet all of them. And um, I was really happy because the guys let me kind of sneak them some, some swag, some of the some of the sweatshirts and the <laughs> water bottles and stuff that we had and then the towels and all of that that we made for Valley Fest. Um, for the Valley Fest episode, we had a whole bunch of swag made for the Cobras to be throwing into the crowd. So we kind of made each of them a little bag and it was a pleasure to meet them, especially because unfortunately I was really sad to hear that we really did lose one this year. So yeah, yeah, it was, it, it definitely hit everybody that grew up watching the movies and even, you know, the, the new cast members and even new viewers that started off with Cobra Kai. I'm sure they felt that too. It was really special to be able to meet them. He came, they came in with photos and everything of like them as, as kids growing up. And this was how they grew up because they, every few years, like they would get back together and do do this thing together. Yeah. I think it meant, I think it meant a lot to them to be able to do this together. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're a part of people's childhood, you know, that I, I can't even fathom that. They're a part of my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Crease being a prominent character in, in season two, uh, were there any props of his that you needed to recreate? Like, for example, maybe um, his army photo, uh, something like that? I think it was kind of his room. And, oh, goodness, uh, does Marty love his cigars? Good for Marty, because if he's going to have to smoke them the whole time that we're shooting, at least he loves them. <laughs> but um, he wears this large turquoise ring, and it really is Marty's ring. And it was, and he, and he told me the story that it was like a custom it was like a custom made ring and it's beautiful. And um, I tried through hell and high water to find a match of that ring. And I could not for the life of me. I found a really, really good sort of okay double for, for the stunt double for some of the shots. But um, Marty didn't have as many, as many things that we had to recreate the, um, the war photos. I mean, there's enough, there's enough photos and history of, Martin Cove dressed up and in fatigues and holding weapons, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but our art department also um, also did a great job comping together the things that they needed. But it was really interesting to see a character like that and to meet Marty. And he's like, I mean, John Kreese is such a is such a dour man. And he's just like this force of negative energy. And then you meet Martin. And he's just he's a, he's a, he's a smiler. He's he makes sure and goes out of the way and says hi to everybody. He would come to my office just to say, just like pass by and, hey, how's it going? Um, <laughs> yeah. So that was that was really interesting. I like the dichotomy of his character. Now, now we've talked about some of the things that you've uh, recreated, but uh, in season two, what were some of your favorite items that you guys made that were original pieces? Ooh, I love the ice. I love the fake ice that we made, the big sheets, the recreating from when Daniel went to, went to Okinawa. Um, what else did we get to make that was totally new? Um, we had the mini bonsai trees that Daniel gives away to each customer that buys a car at his dealership, how he always gives away the little bonsai trees. Bonsai trees are ridiculously hard to, um, to keep alive. Luckily, we had a fantastic greensman who took care of them and had a lot of bonsai trees all the time. But when we needed to have all these tiny little ones for 
like the whole season. I found petrified bonsai trees on the internet from a nursery. I can't remember where, but they were over a hundred years old, petrified bonsai trees. They were like six to eight inches tall. They were the cutest things and they were so hardy. And we use those so much. They're weirdly one of my favorite things that we managed to find on that. That and the vintage Cobra car shifter that I gave to Transpo to put into the Cobra Kai mobile. Um, <laughs> it was, I bought it on eBay and it was like in this old shitty 90s, like yellowed packaging, but it was a, it was a, a chrome Cobra as the, as the gear shift. And it was the, the only one like that. But I do remember how much we we loved helping do that Cobra Kai car, Johnny's car, which he abandons at the end of season two. Oops. <laughs> Another season two spoiler. But, um, also, <laughs> yes, if you haven't watched it, you're a season behind. Get on it. Right. For the pandemic, what else are we going to do? But what else do we get to make? How about uh, anything for Homeless Lynn? Oh, Homeless Lynn. I love that her sign was the back of the, of the Cobra Kai that when Johnny hires her to be the sign center and then the little sign she has that's like that gives her shade that she puts on her little uh, her little abuela cart that that's that that's a sign spinner sign that she's just like taking it like forget you Johnny because I love that Lynn is kind of just as self-interested as Johnny is at that point when they meet anyway yeah she was great Anything in the homes, like the LaRusso's uh, house or Johnny's apartment? Yes. What did we made? Uh... I don't know if I told. I, I, yeah, I think I shared some photos of, of mine. Um, so I, I've been in Johnny's apartment and I didn't know this, but uh, his cans of banquet, uh, banquets are is a prop. They are. Um, any beer and stuff like that is um, is all is all props. So we had a lot of course banquets <laughs> in our prop lockup. Whether they were some of them were empty, they were full, they were emptied and then refilled with non-alcoholic beer, whatever it was. Um, fun fact: one the when uh, when Miguel's mom does her um, does her sexy dance on top of the on top of the car, that is real course banquet. Oh, um, so she's that she's shooting all over herself. And I was with another unit at the time. I missed it, but apparently it was hilarious. And at the end of the day, she really smelled like beer. Because, of course, she did. Luckily, it's great beer hair. Um, oh, wow. But, yeah, so much beer. We, I mean, water that looks like beer, non-alcoholic beer, all different kinds, like, depending on, because if you have to drink, if you have to, if he has to crack a beer and then take a, take a mouthful of it every time, then it's going to end up being a lot. So sometimes it ends up being just water, but most of the time it's, it's just non-alcoholic beer because obviously we're not drinking. No one's drinking real alcohol inside of coffee. So, so are you guys like making those cans yourselves, or do you guys have to have it ordered? Um, no, we go out and buy them like everybody else. Uh, then what we do with them after, whether we empty them and recap them, we do have the tools to recap, or we just empty them and dump them. But we we were probably the largest purchaser of Cora's Banquet in the state of Georgia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. Now, uh, there was a big sequence in episode five, I believe it was. Uh, people dub it the mall brawl or brawl at the mall. Uh, any any stuff in those scenes uh, at the mall that you guys created? Oh, yes. I forgot about the mall. And I have to say, by the way, the, of that, that for that episode, my actual favorite is the, co- is the comic book that we made. Oh, okay. 
because it starts off in the comic book store and we see Dimitri getting chased through because he goes to pick up his favorite comic book, which is something, oh God, fans are going to hate me, something about wizards. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but um, I do remember going through exhaustive amounts of edits for that. And I, we definitely did that with uh, Andrea Ferguson, our graphic designer, who did a wonderful job. Um, the back cover of the comic book was actually a, a PSA that we got from a company online that had reached out to me about putting messages out. I want to say it was through Sony for environmental messages. Um, so the back cover is, I believe it encourages you to eat healthy or ride your bike or something like that. But uh, that's what was on the back of the comic book, which thank goodness, because then we didn't have to draw more art because we went through so many different passes, I think, for the for the cover for the comic book. And uh, yeah, there's a lot going on there. And then we, let's see, we go through the whole through the whole fight and there's just a there's probably two three hundred background eating fast food in a food court and they pick up the trays and they're hitting each other with the trays and it's that was a very fun day on set to watch all of those kids kick ass they worked so hard it was very impressive yeah it, it pays off because all those fighting sequences especially the um brawl in the hall uh, you know, with the the huge wonder that everybody continues to talk about. Now, what are some of the challenges being a prop master or working in props? Like, do you guys come across um, something where, because it resembles like something else, is there copyright issues when it comes to props or anything like that at all? Yes, there is. Um, we call them clearances. So um, we have less issues with having to clear things um, on YouTube. Thank you, YouTube. And even with networks uh, like HBO and Netflix, you don't have to jump through quite as many hoops. But otherwise, you have to consider who would say, yes, you may use this product because say that you use an Apple phone in the show, but then the first advertisement when they go to commercials is for you know Samsung or Windows, then they don't want you showing necessarily an Apple phone through the entire show. So we kind of, you have to get, there's a lot of permissions that you have to give, which is pretty much permissions is really all the clearances is, is having everybody say it's okay, whether it's the art on a comic book or um, the name brand on a soda or on a beer or on a watch, whatever it is, sunglasses, any of those things. But luckily um, we didn't have quite as many of those issues because YouTube, and I was really grateful because I helped, I think that it really helps to be able to show real brands on shows. I think that it helps to anchor it into reality. It's more relatable to people to be able to see their favorite characters buying similar things that they do, um, recognizing brands and companies, um, logos and things like that. I, I just think that it's so that we don't even notice how much we find comfort in it because it's, it's familiar. And then to see brands like fake beer brands, for instance, like Heisler that show up all the time. And you're like, oh, it's exhausting. And I know that that's like the, that that's a fake beer brand or, or Duff. that they use. <laughs> Duff. <laughs> yes. Heisler is the new Duff. But um, yeah, I've been on shows where they don't even want us to use the fake brands because people almost recognize some of the fake brands as much as they do the real brands now. Interesting. But um yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really great. Like they let us use, for instance, there was uh, oh, funny enough, 
when Daniel is trying to is trying to cheer up his wife and he brings her roses and he brings her her favorite sushi, um, which is from Sugarfish, and he brings her her favorite candy, which is Seas. And um, Seas and Sugarfish are both companies that are prominently found in California, in Los Angeles. And um, shooting in Georgia, we are clearly not in Los Angeles and able to run around the corner and pick up Sugarfish so we can have that very recognizable sushi box that is labeled and has all of the different compartments and everything. And it's people just recognize it. They know what it is. I don't even live in Los Angeles and I recognize it and know what it is. Um, I actually have a twin sister that lives in Los Angeles and I would bribe her to go and pick up some sushi and then send me the back so that, <laughs> um, yeah, so that I could have it because we didn't have time to go through all of the permissions because um, sometimes we just don't have time. So there are ways around it. For them to ask Sugarfish to actually send me a box because they, they're very busy. They don't care. They, yeah. So instead, my sister would go and she would pick up sushi and she would clean out the containers and then she would send them to me. And after sending, after taking photos of what everything looked like, and then she would send it to me. And then I would go somewhere and I would buy sushi and all of the accoutrements. And I would refill the box and to make it look exactly as it did before she ate all the sushi in Los Angeles and sent it to me. So that was one of the ways that we were able to kind of root ourselves into Los Angeles and kind of show this easily recognizable brand, but in a way that only took three days to get it together. And my sister got a really great sushi meal out of it. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Yeah, hats off to the sister. But it's just amazing the research and the work you guys put into to you know, just to make something for the the littlest of um, screen time for an item, it's quite amazing. Well, we try. Yeah, we try to make it again. It's what makes it relatable. It's what makes you feel like these characters could be people that you know in real life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're just like you. Um, now, I probably have maybe a couple more items uh, as we get ready to wrap up here. Please. Yeah. Um, what about rule number one and rule number two? Oh, rule number one and rule number two on the scrolls on the wall. Those were actually items of set dressing. I can tell you that um, that we dealt with them a little bit only when they were redoing Mr. Miyagi's dojo. And they kind of take them out of a box. But otherwise, I really can't take credit for those. I'll okay. take credit for a few other things, but not for those, unfortunately. Those came from set dressing. Okay. Because ultimately, they did end up just hanging on the wall. Okay. Not to, de- not to mean that in any way. But I just meant that it, there was limited tactile. Um, the things in the actual Cobra Kai dojo, there's clearly some, you know, different uh, training equipments and such. What is decided? What would be made by the prop department versus being ordered, like Bob the dummy, you know, something like that. So there's the prop department, which we handle everything that is, for the most part, everything that is touched. But at the same time, you can say, but. They touch a sofa, they touch a bed, but those pieces are, those pieces stay in a room. The way I usually explain it is like a sofa doesn't travel with a person from room to room, but a watch does, um, a cell phone does. It's not location specific. Um, so things that were in the dojo, we wanted to make sure, and we would kind of get together and, with the set dressing department and with the production designer and the art director and talk about what kinds of equipment would be in this room. And then what kinds of equipment can we have the kids? Because we would be in those rooms for hours. I mean, it takes a very long time to shoot a scene when you have 12 people minimum in there doing a workout. 
getting coverage on six people who who all have lines. So these people have to be able to repeat this action over and over again. So some of the equipment, like those ropes, those ropes are are very real and they're very heavy. And then some of the the weights are, you know, lighter weights. They could be five, 10 pounds, two pounds. But then we would also get weights that only weigh five pounds, but look like they weigh 35 pounds. We kind of just try to find ways to sort of cheat to kind of help the kids. Again, there's Bob the Dummy. Bob the Dummy, I believe, came from one of the martial arts companies that we were doing business with that were very enthusiastic to have their equipment included on our show. I mean, it's about teamwork. Filmmaking is a team sport and none of us can do can do this just by ourselves. So set dressing, props, even stunts about if they have like a certain activity. And um, I think at one point, like somebody was supposed to have a medicine ball and we used what was essentially a dodgeball for somebody to get checked in the chest with a medicine ball. It's about safety and about making sure that you know, everybody's comfortable and the actors can, can actually deal with the things that they have. We had those, oh, I remember those Thor hammers. Do you remember the giant swinging hammers that the kids had? The the ropes or? I don't think it was ever featured prominently, but the kids in the background in the back room at the Cobra Kai dojo, mm-hmm. they had these giant, they're like Thor hammers, but they're probably three, four feet long, tall. And they would swing them and they would hit sandbags with them. The sandbags are very real. The hammers are very real. And the hammers have a plug on them. And they're incredibly heavy. It makes for one hell workout because I tried it. (laughs) (laughs) I played with the ropes a little bit, but that was it. (laughs) It's hard work. Yeah, yeah, it really is. (laughs) But yeah, so we did not fill those hammers with, uh, with fluid or sand so that the kids could swing them and they would be not quite as heavy. But I mean, a lot of the stuff the kids kind of really do have to do because there's only so many ways that you can fake it and have it look like they're really working and have that many people staying busy. Same thing with even in the episode when the kids are carrying the the cement bags, we had some of the cement bags were, were emptied and they were lighter and refilled up. But a lot of those cement bags really were really heavy because they wanted to see the kids really struggling, really going through the stress of having to carry that stuff around. Not in a mean way, because they're not prohibitively heavy, but just in a, these kids are working hard way. And the kids were very into it. They uh, they agreed that they wanted to work hard. These kids are beasts. It's very impressive. Yeah. And I guess the last one that I have for you is the cement. Did you guys make the cement that's inside the cement truck? The cement was actually made by the special effects department. We had a great special effects department. It is essentially, um, it's it's a fake movie mud. It's It does not harden. Uh, or anything like that, because real cement has lye in it, and it would burn your flesh. The kids, if anybody really had to rip open a bag, they obviously would have worn gloves and all of that. But it was a it was a movie, a movie mud made by them, and they filled up the. I will look and see if I have any photos for you. The it was a moving set that to, that made it look like that the kids were inside of the cement mixing truck, but it was a um a large round room that construction built and then um, that special effects filled with this movie mud that was very cool. And um, so kind of hair and props and dressing and makeup, everybody was kind of go over and bring a bucket and set, uh, excuse me, special effects would give us uh, a small amount of this movie mud 
that they were going to use and the costumes would put it all over the clothes and make it put it on the faces <laughs> and we were putting it on all the props and it was, it was a very dirty very muddy day and I have to say it was a hot day so that was definitely one of the muddier days I can tell you every member of my crew went home filthy and we all threw away our work gloves at the end of that day it was fun though that's the important thing right that you guys are also having fun I think so. I think that that's one of the best parts of our job is that our job is fun. It's different every day. We would be, we'd be remiss if we didn't take the, take a time to appreciate that. And that concludes my conversation with Becca Canyon. I want to thank her again for giving me the opportunity to pick her brain a little bit and talk about some of those amazing props that they created and recreated. If you guys want to give her a follow, I will include her Instagram account in the show notes. So check that out there. Uh, if you want to give us a follow on social media, you can do so on Instagram at Cobra Kai Podcast and on Twitter at Cobra Kai Pod. If you're a newer listener and enjoyed this interview, I definitely encourage you to go back and check out some of the other interviews that we have done on the show. There's definitely uh, fun stuff to be heard for sure. If YouTube is your thing, we do have a YouTube channel. Just search Cobra Kai Companion. That is Companion with a K. We hope to create some more videos for that channel, um, some of which are its infancy stage of production, if you will. So that's going to conclude this episode, and I hope you guys are staying safe out there and uh, wishing everybody well. And not only that, I want to thank everybody for your guys' continued support, and I'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Cortem Parts Podcast Network. To listen to more Cortem Parts shows, visit cortemparts.com.